you take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 22. Last week we, we finished uh, quite abruptly at the end of chapter 21 where, where Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. And if you remember, Paul had this desire to go to Jerusalem to really celebrate the, the Feast of Pentecost with his Jewish brethren there. But it didn't work out the way as he had hoped. And when he arrived in Jerusalem, he met with the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And the leaders of the church, they knew that Paul's visit was going to cause some trouble. Not because Paul was a troublemaker, but because Paul was passionate and he had passionately taught that Jewish Christians were free from the, the ceremonial aspects of the law. So the leaders of the Jerusalem church really could have used this opportunity to, um, to clarify any misconceptions that they may have had about Paul's teaching. But instead, these leaders proposed a compromise, hoping to make the, the people happy by rather emphasizing their traditions and emphasizing their customs above the gospel. And I believe, uh, as we saw last week, that Paul did compromise and in an effort not to offend the, the Jewish church, he participated in a, in a Jewish ceremony that really did emphasize the law, the very thing that he had taught against. And this scheme ended up backfiring on Paul, as we will see in our passage this morning, as we saw last week. Um, and while Paul was finishing this Jewish ceremony in the temple there in Jerusalem, other non-believing Jews saw Paul and recognized him in the temple as the one who was teaching that Christ was the fulfillment of all the, the Jewish ceremonies, and they seized him, and they, they beat him, and they wanted to kill him. And then Roman soldiers intervened and saved Paul's life by arresting him, thinking that he was a, a terrorist who was stirring up revolt. And as Paul was brought back into the, the barracks, he he gets permission from the chief captain to speak, and that's where we ended last week. We didn't hear what he had to speak, but today we will be um, hearing that speech that Paul shares. So please would you stand with me as we read Acts 22. We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 22. And the title of my sermon this morning is A Testimony of Grace, A Testimony of Grace. So verse 1, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Remember, he's talking to the Jews here. I persecuted this way. This way is the, the term for the Christians. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there, and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near 
to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple. I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. They raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he shall not be allowed to live. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we pray for your help as we study your word. We pray that your spirit would teach us. Help us, Lord, not to be distracted. We ask that you place a hedge around us today, that the enemy will not keep our attention from what you have for us today. I pray for your help as I preach. Lord, please be my sufficiency today. May the meditations of my heart and the words of my lips not fall to the ground today. May you be honored and glorified today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. As I mentioned, the title of my sermon this morning is A Testimony of Grace. And we will be looking at Paul's testimony of grace that he shared with the unbelieving Jews um, in Jerusalem. And if you are a Christian this morning, you too have a, a testimony of God's grace. And one dictionary defines testimony as giving a first-hand authentication of a fact, especially in court. It also has the idea of open acknowledgement and is closely related to being a witness. In Hebrew, it refers to someone who sees something amazing or important. And in Greek, it means to answer. So I've heard Hytham's testimony a few times, and I never get tired of hearing a brother's testimony. If you were here at our family Bible hour, you would have heard a portion of it this morning as he shared with us. But did you know that Hytham had to go to a public library in Jordan 
so that he could secretly read a Bible so that he could learn more about Christ. Hytham is from a non-believing family and a non-believing Christian background, and there wasn't any Christians around him who were able to share the gospel with him or even close to where he lived who were able to share the good news with him. But in Hytham's words, God's irresistible grace was so real and so tangible that it led Hytham to find a Bible and to read the news of Jesus Christ for himself. And whenever he shares his testimony, he's always quick to point to God's saving grace, how God saved a sinner like him. But I wonder this morning, do you have a testimony that you've shared with others? Do you have a testimony of grace where where God broke down from eternity past into your heart and your life and changed your life? Have you a testimony of that to share with others? Well, if you're a Christian, you, you should have a testimony to share. To know Jesus is to have a story of how you came to know Jesus. In fact, if you're saved, you have a testimony, you have a story. You, your personal story matters. The personal details of how you came to Christ matters. And the change that Christ makes in your life or has made in your life matters. And today we're not going to discover a new technique, but we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul how we must give glory to God by telling the story of God's grace in our lives. So my first point this morning is from verse 1 to verse 5, and that is zealous for the wrong reasons. Look in your Bibles, if you would, in verse 1. Paul says, this is his testimony, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Remember the commander, the chief captain, gave Paul permission to speak. And Paul raises his hand and we see a great hush falls over the crowd as he speaks to them in Aramaic, which was a Hebrew dialect of the day. And he reminded the Jews that were there that he himself was a Jew. He reminds them that he was born in Tarsus. He reminds them that he was educated in a secular university there, but he came to Jerusalem and he sat under the teaching of the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. He was one of the seven most famous rabbis of all time. And Paul took his seminary training in Jerusalem, and he became a specialist in the Mosaic law, the the law of Moses. And Paul was trying to connect here with the Jews. Paul was trying to convince them that he knew the Mosaic law very well, and he had been trained under this great teacher Gamaliel about the law. And he was zealous for the law at one point, very zealous. And he reminded them that he persecuted Christians for the sake of this Mosaic law. And in essence, what he's saying is, is I am a rabbi, I'm a teacher, and I was zealous for the law as, as you know my reputation. And he's saying, I know how you Jews feel. I was once like you. 
So I understand your anger. I understand your frustration and confusion over what the Christians are teaching. But look at verse 4 there in the Scriptures. He says to them, I, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So he goes on to explain that he, in fact, was responsible for many Christians' deaths. He had persecuted many Christians, and that word, the way, is used for the early Christians um, in Jerusalem at that time. But notice here, Paul was not considering the claims of Christ as he marches toward Damascus that day. He was not unhappy with his life as a Jew. He was not searching for another way. He had not been reading a Bible. He had not been even rereading the Bible in light of the, the life and the death and the resurrection of, of Jesus, or the claims that Jesus has made. He wasn't trying to disprove the Bible. He wasn't trying to find the answers in the Bible. What he was doing, as he testifies, was aggressively defending the Jewish faith. He was seeking to destroy heretics who claimed that Jesus was the Christ. And it was while he was passionately doing this that God literally stopped Paul in his tracks. The power of God knocked Paul to the ground and blinded him. I think the first thing that we can learn from Paul's testimony is that being religious doesn't help. <laughs> being religious does not reconcile us to God. And the scribes and the Pharisees in the Bible, they were devoted to religion. They were devoted to their customs. They were devoted to their ceremonies. And their religion forced them really to depend on these traditions. Their religion forced them to keep rules and to try and earn favor with God by doing these rituals. And Jesus has a lot to say about the Pharisees of those days and the religion that they were following and the traditions that they were so passionate about. Jesus says they walk around in flowing robes and they love to be greeted and respected in the marketplaces and they, they love to have the most important seats in the synagogues and in the, the places of honor at banquets. And Jesus said in Matthew that they, they were devouring widows' houses and for a show they were making lengthy prayers. And their religion was just outward. It was just external and it was heavily influenced by traditions. And rather than looking after the, the widows as they should have, James tells us in chapter 1 that the Pharisees robbed them. Jesus says they were like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they were, they were clean and they were well kept. On the outside, looking very pure. But like a tomb on the inside, they were, they were rotten. They were like bones that were decaying. And there's a lot today that people consider religion, but are really just human traditions that give the appearance of devotion, but ultimately have little to do with the soul, the soul that counts. 
And do you know our largest attended services are on Christmas and on Easter? Pastors call these um, people submarine Christians. They surface above the water twice a year and then they go back down below. And so many people think that if they just go to church twice a year and they keep these Christian traditions, that they will earn favor with God. And people can recite prayers, people can recite candles, I mean light candles, they can take communion even, and they can even go through the motions of attending church without having really any meaningful difference in their lives. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we are warned that people can have a form of, of godliness, an external form of godliness. But despite their external ceremonies, they still remain unloving, they remain unthankful, they remain uncontrolled, they remain unrepentant. And Jesus said that those religious scribes and Pharisees that were like this, that his final word to them is, I don't know you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That's what he, he says to these religious people. Again, in James chapter 1, verse 27, it tells us that true religion in God's eyes makes a difference in who we are and what we do. It's a religion that is based on a relationship with Jesus, a relationship with God. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. As Haitham explained this morning, as Christians, we don't keep God's commandments to earn favor with Him. That's not how our faith works. Our faith is based in Jesus. He is the object of our faith, in what He has achieved and what He has done for us. And because we love Him, we keep His commandments. Not because we have to, not because we're trying to earn favor and points with God. We love God because He first loved us. And our love leads to action. It is the fulfillment of the law, as Romans 13 tells us. And this religion of relationship is not based on, on what we do for God. It is based on what God has done for us. We're not trusting in our performance. We are trusting in the person of Jesus Christ. And it leads to my second point. Look at verse 6. Salvation by grace alone. Salvation by grace alone. Look at verse 6. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. Look at verse 7. And I fell to the ground and a voice, I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. So here Paul recalls everything that had happened to him on the road to Damascus. It's a vivid picture. I think it's still very fresh in his mind as he explains it to us. And Paul met the resurrected Christ that day on the road to Damascus. And Christ sovereignly intervened into the life of Paul that day. And Paul was not seeking Christ. He was on his way to persecute Christians. But see what was happening. Christ was seeking Paul. 
Paul was changed when Christ laid hold of him and revealed his sin and broke his heart and gave him a new heart on the road to Damascus. And we're not going to look closely at this um, telling of Paul's conversion at the road of Damascus. We've already done that. But remember, everything that happened on that day was not because of Paul. Paul didn't invite Jesus into his heart. Paul didn't say a nice little prayer or sign a card. It didn't happen like that. Paul wasn't looking for Christ. Christ was looking for Paul. Everything about Paul's conversion came from God. And that's how conversion works. It should work, folks. God didn't look down and see some merit in Paul and say, well, Paul, okay, you qualify. You can become a Christian. In fact, the opposite is true. And he confesses this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He tells us that he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was a violent aggressor. And twice Jesus emphasizes that by persecuting the church, Paul was persecuting himself. He was persecuting Jesus. And because of this, really what he deserved, what Paul deserved, he didn't get. He deserved to be thrown into hell, didn't he? But instead, he was shown God's mercy. And Paul's testimony teaches us that salvation is totally by God's grace. It is totally by God's power. It has nothing really to do with us. No merit that we earn. How many times we say our prayers, not, much, not even how much money we give to the church. No matter even how many times we, we read the Bible. It's not about what we do. It's about what Christ does in our hearts. And Paul could have at any point tried to really water down his experience here. But he's been very truthful. He's been very honest. He's been very faithful here with his testimony. And I think sometimes this, this doctrine of God's sovereignty is unfortunately watered down. People don't like to hear that God is in control and that we are not. People don't like to hear that God is holy and that we are sinful. They don't like to hear this. People like to hear this watered-down version of, well, we chose God. I was in control. I knew what I was doing, and I chose God. God is my partner. They like to hear these watered-down false heresies. He could have at any time tried to have made his testimony more palatable for, for Jews. And remember, Jews were around him at this time. He could have even left out some offensive portions to make the crowd happy, but he doesn't. Look at verse 14. Look in your Bibles in verse 14. He tells us, he says, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul is not mincing words here. He's not watering down his conversion at all. And in his verses, he's plainly retelling his conversion to the Jews from being a Jewish Pharisee now to becoming a committed Christian. He talks about the righteous one 
who opened his eyes and had granted him faith and repentance. He talks about confession and the faith that he needed to publicly be baptized, confessing his faith in Jesus. And the gospel isn't that, that God loves you or that Jesus will rescue you or that Jesus will give you a purpose, that Jesus will make your life better. It doesn't, the gospel doesn't promise a, a happy marriage. The gospel doesn't promise successful children. It may help with that, but there are no guarantees. And Paul wasn't being a modern-day salesman here, trying to sell the gospel, a watered-down version to the people around him. And I think we can learn from that. When we share our own testimonies with people, we need to share the truth, the gospel truth. We're not selling a product to people, folks. And the truth is we are all sinners. We were all like Paul. We were all murderers. We were all, if we haven't physically murdered somebody, willing in our heart to murder somebody. We've all offended a holy God. Our minds commit adultery every opportunity that, that we have. We are running away from God. Without God's grace, we are condemned sinners. There's really nothing good in us that God wants. We are serving sin, our master. And the heart of the gospel is that Jesus died and rose again as a substitute for sinners. Jesus appeased God's wrath and he reconciled us to himself. And when sharing our testimonies, we must communicate this. We must communicate it honestly. And we need to call people to count the costs. We need to call people to count the costs. One pastor said, never substitute your testimony for the gospel. Always use your story to illustrate the power of the gospel. And I've heard people share testimony sometimes, and I think people can get carried away by telling people how wonderful they are <laughs> and how great they were to, to overcome addiction or to overcome porn or to overcome some other thing. And they, they kind of turn the glory towards themselves. And Paul isn't doing this at all here. He's been very clear that he was a sinner, but he doesn't glorify his sin. He glorifies the one who has the power to cleanse him from his sin. And he calls these people to a response. And the gospel always requires us to call people to respond. Life and death are at stake, folks. Now, life is a vapor. We don't know when our life will end. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Keep your hand, your page there in Acts 22. But look at 2 Corinthians, if you would, chapter 5. Second Corinthians 5 verse 20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you are a Christian this morning, the scriptures call you an ambassador. You have a message from a king 
You're not a salesman trying to sell a product to consumers. You have a message from the king. And we must appeal to people urgently. We must appeal to people confidently. We need to appeal to people honestly. God is sovereign and he is in the business of saving sinners. And if God's grace and power are mighty to save a sinner such as, such as Paul, then he is able to save any sinner. And that's where our confidence needs to be, folks. Not in the eloquence of our speech. Not in the amazing story behind our testimony. Our confidence has to be in the power that God has to save any sinner. And he's able to do it instantly. And he's able to do it totally. We don't have to manipulate the story or water down the story to make it more easy for people to digest. We just need to be honest. And we need to be faithful. My third point is in verse 17. Even though we may be faithful with the gospel, we will get opposition towards the gospel of grace. There will be opposition to the gospel of grace. Look at verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Remember, after Paul's last missionary trip, he was very determined to come back to Jerusalem. He wanted to stay in Jerusalem and he wanted to be a witness to his, his fellow Jews. And Paul tried his level best to demonstrate to this angry Jewish mob the, the genuineness of his conversion experience. And in these verses, Paul relates an incident which happened not too long after his conversion when the Lord spoke to him as he was praying in the temple. We see that he fell into a trance and God told him quickly to leave Jerusalem since the Jews were not going to listen to his testimony. Paul was determined to share his God-given conviction that the Gentiles were equal and they were fellow heirs with the Jews through Jesus Christ. But we know the, the Jewish crowd was filled with hatred for what he was saying. They were filled with prejudice. They didn't want anything to do with the Jews and the, uh, sorry, the Gentiles. And they didn't want to hear what Paul had to say at all. And Paul had not yet realized that just because you know the truth and, and God has done great things in your life, that it does not automatically mean that people will hear and they will give attention to your sharing of your Christian testimony and the gospel. And expect that, folks. I've heard many people tell me with grief and sadness how they have shared their testimony with their families and their families have rejected it and their families don't want anything to do with them anymore they're not even invited anymore to family functions because they don't want anything to do with these radical christians but we have a message from the king nonetheless don't we folks and we have a a word that we need to share whether people like to hear it or whether they don't in verse 19 then to verse 21 we get the feeling that that Paul is arguing with God. In verse 19, Paul calls God Lord. Notice there, capital L-O-R-D. 
But at the same time, it seems like he wants his own will to be done. In verse 21, the, the Lord tells him emphatically how and where he is to go and to share the gospel. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, not to the Jews. And sometimes, actually often, God's will for us does not always coincide with our will and our plans for ourselves. He wants the message of His salvation to go to the nations of the earth. And while we aren't all called to be missionaries, like Paul was, we are not called to live our lives selfishly for ourselves. While there are people in darkness, while their people are still lost, while their people are still dying in essence. And if like the Jews of Paul's day, we begin to grow comfortable, we are comfortable where we are, we're just comfortable being in our own church, comfortable with our own people, just like the Jews were. They were God's chosen people, and everyone else must just stay away. If we become like this, and we ignore God's purpose of reaching the lost, then, then we're really missing God's purpose for our lives. And the word go appears more than 1,700 times in the Bible. We must be a people who are willing to go because God is sending His Son. He has sent His Son. He is ascending God. And because God is a global God, His heart is for every, everybody, everywhere. And even though people will reject us, and the gospel that we speak of, we mustn't shrink back from sharing the good news of Jesus. Despite the opposition Paul experienced, he was hopeful that the response of his Jewish countrymen would be one of repentance and faith. Paul understood the power of God because he was a Pharisee. He understood that there is power in the gospel that he was sharing, and he was committed to share it. And Paul went and he challenged his kinsmen about the nature of faith and the, the nature of repentance as was revealed to him by Christ. And I do think this is a valid application, again, for every one of us. You know, when we share the gospel with our families, when we share the gospel with our, our friends, we're not sharing stories of how good we are. We're not sharing stories of how disciplined we are or how wonderful we are to have given up certain things. When we share the gospel, we're sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're calling people to repentance. We're calling people to examine their hearts. We're calling people to put their faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. This is very much part of Paul's testimony, and it needs to be very much part of ours. Faith and repentance are are often seen alongside one another in the Bible. And each is a response to the message of the gospel. And the gospel is good news, but it is news that demands a response. And let me finish this morning with a quote from a book, uh, What is the Mission of the Church? And it's by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. And in there they say, If we understand evangelism itself though as a deep and profound act of love for Christ and other people, 
we will do it more often. And we will do it with the right motives too. Love for people instead of regard for ourselves. I know for some people, sharing their testimony can be a scary thing. You know, one person said to me very honestly once that they would rather have a root canal than share the gospel with somebody. I mean, I can understand that pain, but it turned out that this person was not a, was not a genuine believer. And I think as Christians, we have a duty. We have a duty to share the good news of Christ with, with others. We have a duty to share our testimonies, and our testimonies are powerful tools that God can use for His glory. And people can doubt, they can even debate the Bible, they can even debate the existence of, of God, but nobody can deny your story, your personal story with God, because that is what happened. And your testimony is a powerful, effective tool in your evangelism toolbox. And your personal story matters. The personal details of how you came to Christ matters. And the change that Christ makes in your life matters. In Luke chapter 8, remember after Jesus had healed the demon-possessed man, what did Jesus do? He sent this man to tell his story. It tells us in Luke 8 verse 38, The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Turn with me to Psalm quickly, Psalm chapter 40. I want to read to you the example that we have here of King David in Psalm 40. Psalm 40 verse 9 and verse 10. David says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. We've seen the power of the testimony throughout the book of Acts. Remember in Acts chapter 4, in verse 33, it tells us, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it tells us, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it celebrates the power of a testimony as a as a tool in fighting against the devil. It tells us, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. We sing that song, don't we, folks? We sing it in church. But are we sharing it outside of these walls? The testimony of what Christ has done for us? And the word witness is the most frequently used word in the Bible to express a believer's primary role in the world. 
But here's a question I want to ask you. What would happen if a witness took the stand and was asked for his or her testimony but never opened their mouth? Well, we have a message to share, folks, from the King. And we are on the stand. We've been asked to share our testimony. Are we opening our mouths? And Paul's life was changed by Jesus, and he had to speak out about the one who had given him the forgiveness of sins. And Paul took the stand, and Paul opened his mouth about eternal life. Paul opened his mouth about peace, about death. An assurance of heaven and purpose for life. But what about you, Christian? Are you speaking to others a simple testimony as to how Christ saved you and how Christ has changed you? If Christ has saved you, you have a testimony to share. You are responsible to tell others that He changed your life and He will change the lives of all others who turn to Him and accept Him as Christ, Savior and Lord. D.L. Moody, the, fav- the famous evangelist, the story goes that he made a covenant with God, a promise with God that he would witness for Christ to at least one person a day. And one night about 10 o'clock, he realized that he had not yet witnessed. So he went out into the street and he spoke to a man who was standing next to a lamppost. And he asked this man, are you a Christian? And the man flew into a violent rage and he he threatened to knock Moody into the gutters. But later on, the same man, he was still so angry, he went to one of the elders in the church there in Chicago and he complained to this elder about Moody. And this is what he says. He said, Moody is doing more harm in Chicago than Ten men were doing good. Eventually the elders came to Moody and they, and they begged him and they said, Moody, please, you need to temper your, your zeal. You need to quieten down your zeal. And the story continues. Three months later, Moody was woken up at night by somebody banging on his door. And as he opened the door, he saw this man that he had witnessed to three months ago. The man said to him, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you about my soul. And he he was crying and he was apologizing to Moody for the way that he had treated him. The way that he was towards him. And he said that he had no peace ever since that day, that night on Lake Street when Moody was witnessing to him. And the story goes, Moody led this man to Christ, and this man became a very zealous worker for Christ in the church. Christians, we have a story to tell. We don't know how God will use the seed that we plant, but we are the farmer who sows the seed It's not our job to make the seed grow. That is God's job. It is His power. And we trust in His power. It is our responsibility to sow the seed. We have a story to tell. The change Christ makes in your life matters. We have been saved for a reason. 
with the circumstances around us for a purpose. And we need to share our story with others. Share the good news of what Christ has done through Jesus Christ in your life. Share it confidently. Share it honestly. And share it urgently. Father, we thank you for what you have done in our hearts and our lives. For those of us who are Christians, we sing songs of your grace. We praise your name for what you have done for us. But we ask, Lord, that we would glorify you outside of these walls as we leave today. We ask, Lord, that we would be sharing this wonderful gospel testimony with those in our workplace, with those that we meet in the shops, with those in our college, with those in our school. We pray that you'd help us even to share our testimonies with those who are our family members. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the confidence we need. May we not be ashamed of the gospel. Lord, we pray that we would hear you tell us one day, well done, my good and faithful servants, as we are sharing Christ with others. So help us, Lord, we pray. Give us opportunities this week as we leave this place together. May we be encouraged. May we be motivated. May we be persuaded, Lord. May your Spirit persuade us today that your grace is indeed sufficient. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.